to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, June 6th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. The U.S. SEC sues crypto exchange Binance. A study finds the costs of COVID lockdowns far outweighed the benefits. Ukraine launches its much-anticipated counteroffensive. Saudi Arabia says it will cut oil output by one million barrels per day. India's top detective agency is asked to investigate a catastrophic train wreck. Trump's attorneys meet with the Department of Justice. China's defense minister warns of an unbearable disaster in a U.S. PRC conflict. NBC Universal's Joe Benarock joins Twitter. The AstraZeneca lung cancer pill cuts the risk of death in half. And Utah primary schools ban the Bible. In our top story, the SEC sues crypto exchange Binance and its founder. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, NPR Online News, Business Insider, and CNN. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, has sued the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Binance, as well as its founder and CEO, Changping Zhao, accusing them of profiting billions while placing investors' assets at significant risk. The regulator filed 13 charges against Binance in the U.S. District Court for Washington, D.C., including misleading investors about its ability to detect market manipulation, misusing customer funds, and sending some of that money to a company controlled by Zhao. The company is also accused of failing to register as a broker or an exchange with the SEC, arguing that securities law prohibits offering cryptocurrencies without registering them. Exchanges like Binance and its rival Coinbase argue that cryptocurrencies are not securities. Binance allegedly made $11.6 billion between June 2018 and July 2021, mostly through transaction fees. While Zhao publicly claimed U.S. customers were restricted from exchanges on Binance.com, the SEC says he and the company subverted their own controls to secretly allow high-value U.S. customers to continue trading on the Binance.com platform. The news sent a ripple effect across the crypto industry, with Coinbase's stock falling 10% on Monday and currencies such as Bitcoin and Ether both dropping as much as 5% in value. The lawsuit, which follows a U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission complaint alleging Binance violated U.S. derivatives trading laws, comes as Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of crypto exchange FTX, awaits trial for what prosecutors have called one of the biggest financial frauds in U.S. history. All right. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a narrative A from New York Magazine. For more than a decade, Binance has made billions of dollars through its deceitful and fraudulent business practices. Though no criminal charges were made, the SEC is finally, both publicly and officially, calling out the world's crypto leaders for secretly spending customers' money and sliding funds into shell companies to enrich themselves. This will hopefully bring an end to the Wild West era of cryptocurrency, one that has led to vulnerable customers losing billions in lost investments. Narrative B comes from MarketWatch. While existing laws should be enforced, the government should not go any further in treating cryptocurrency like traditional currency or financial institutions. The SEC must allow a more open environment to spur innovation. This also doesn't mean traditional institutions can't participate in the crypto world. They will be the ones who invest in these technologies to making financing cheaper and more efficient. Cryptocurrency is still a viable space. 
I'll tell you what, Eric, the thing that stuck out to me here is typically if you have two competitors, like let's say something horrible happened to Coca-Cola, Pepsi stock would go up. Yeah. In this case, something horrible happened to Binance and their competitor Coinbase's stock went down. The confidence in the whole idea the, is going, it's like it's like if someone's, you know, this Pepsi's down, this whole cola thing is not going to work. Right. Sorry. It's like the whole industry loses credibility because of one. So <clears throat> counterintuitive. It is. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. A new study claims the COVID lockdown costs far outweighed its benefits. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, The Telegraph and Daily Mail. According to a study published by Johns Hopkins and Lund Universities, the benefits of the UK's first round of COVID lockdowns were, quote, a drop in the bucket compared to the staggering collateral costs it imposed, such as economic growth, public debt, and education. After examining 20,000 studies on global COVID measures, the report said that in the spring of 2020, the lockdowns saved as few as 1,700 lives in England and Wales, compared to the average rate of 11,000 weekly deaths. Across Europe, it found less stringent measures would have led to 6,000 fewer deaths and 4,000 fewer in the United States. Even a broadened analysis, which included measures like mask wearing, found the strict rules only reduced mortality by 10.7%. Closing businesses were found to have reduced deaths by 7.5%, while crowd gathering rules, like the UK's Rule of Six, were found to have actually increased mortality by 5.9%. Mask wearing, however, was found to be relatively effective, having reduced deaths by 18.7%. The report says the 1,700 lives saved during the first round of lockdowns were far less than the 18,500 to nearly 25,000 seasonal flu deaths. The UK's lockdown was based on Imperial College London professor Neil Ferguson's prediction that, without such restrictions, more than 500,000 people could die. However, the UK's COVID death rate during the first wave ended up being 150,000. This comes as UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's government is attempting to block an inquiry to obtain redacted messages showing what ministers were discussing during the pandemic. As of May 5th, the UK's COVID death toll stands at 227,000. Scott, thanks for those facts. We have a few spins. The first one is a left narrative coming from Amsterdam News. While various studies have come to show that lockdowns didn't work everywhere all the time, overall, they were the best public health decision at the time. While there were economic costs, which, it should be noted, were mitigated by stimulus programs, studies have found that infection rates were reduced by upwards of 56% thanks to government restrictions. The role of the government during a pandemic is to save people from death and suffering. This is not easy, but a vital function of responsible governance. And the Telegraph brings us the right narrative spin. The UK's policy during COVID was strictly aimed at tearing society apart and, to quote Boris Johnson, scare the wits out of them. The government used COVID to gain power, not protect public health. And this nefarious scheme is clear as day when you see how hard Rishi Sunak is trying to hide government communications from being released. Britons under Winston Churchill were strengthened by their duty to their country and each other. But recent leaders wanted citizens demoralized, scared, and solely reliant on the state. In our next story, Ukraine appears to launch a counteroffensive. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian and TASS. 
A significant escalation in fighting has been reported in Ukraine's Donetsk and Zaporizhia regions in the past day, marking what appear to be the beginning of Ukraine's long-anticipated counteroffensive. Russia's defense ministry on Monday issued a statement that said Ukraine launched a large-scale offensive from the morning of June 4th in five areas of southern Donetsk. It alleged that Ukraine deployed six mechanized battalions and two tank battalions in the assault. A Russian defense ministry spokesman said, quote, the enemy failed to perform its tasks and had no success. It was further claimed that Ukraine lost 250 fighters along 16 tanks and 24 other vehicles, numbers that cannot be independently confirmed. Despite Russia's defense ministry's claim that the attack was thwarted, a Russian militia leader and Russian war bloggers acknowledged that Ukraine appeared to make at least one breakthrough, namely in an area of western Donetsk. Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Russian mercenary force Wagner PMC, also said that Ukrainian troops had retaken parts of Berkivka, a settlement north of Bakhmut in Donetsk, calling it a, quote, disgrace. Meanwhile, in Zaporizhia, Vladimir Rogov, head of Russia's administration in the region, said there had also been significant Ukrainian attacks in the area. He also claimed Ukraine suffered dozens of losses while stating that fighting and artillery exchanges were ongoing in the village of Vrimevka. Ukrainian officials and media have meanwhile remained quiet about any counteroffensive efforts. On Sunday, its armed forces published a video to social media in which soldiers were seen putting a finger to their lips, reiterating the need for secrecy in times of war. Thanks for that update on the ground, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on the conflict from The Guardian. There has been a significant uptick in the fighting in Donetsk and Zaporizhia, likely indicating the beginning of Ukraine's counteroffensive, though this hasn't been confirmed. Either way, any counteroffensive would likely start with feints and diversionary attacks. It's too early to say whether these attacks are the primary assaults. TASS brings us a pro-Russian narrative for this story. Ukraine has launched a large-scale counteroffensive effort in the Donetsk region. However, Russian forces repelled the attacks there and inflicted scores of losses on Ukraine's military, vehicles, and equipment. This attempt has been repulsed almost as soon as it got underway. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there is a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, that's Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before the year 2024. News from the Middle East, Saudi Arabia to cut its oil output by 1 million barrels per day. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Mint, Fortune, The National, and CNBC. Following a meeting of OPEC Plus members at their headquarters in the Austrian capital, Vienna, Saudi Arabia announced on Sunday that it will reduce its crude oil production by 1 million barrels per day in July in a bid to curb supply and boost falling prices. Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman said the kingdom's output will be cut to 9 million BPD, down from about 10 million BPD in May. The reduction is the country's largest in years and comes in addition to existing OPEC Plus cuts of 3.66 million BPD. After lengthy discussions, the OPEC Plus alliance, which includes OPEC and its Russian-led allies, agreed to reduce the overall production target by another 1.4 million barrels per day from 2024. Under the deal, the unmet production quotas of several African members will be lowered, and Russia, the world's second largest oil exporter, will extend its existing cuts by one year through the end of 2024, while the UAE is authorized to raise output targets next year. 
OPEC Plus's decision to set a new production target of 40.46 million BPD for 2024 comes as Brent crude, the international benchmark, dropped about 11% this year amid weak economic growth in the U.S. and China, climbing slightly to about $76 a barrel on Friday. Following Saudi Arabia's announcement of production cuts, which it said could be extended beyond July, Brent crude on Monday traded at $77.30 a barrel, while the U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate hit $72.76 a barrel. Scott, thank you for those facts. Narrative A is coming from USA Today. Saudi Arabia's decision to cut oil production is set to backfire on Riyadh and the Saudi OPEC cartel. First, it will pump extra money into the pockets of Western-sanctioned Moscow, which, in order to finance its invasion of Ukraine, is likely to keep its promise to extend production cuts. Further, it could also reignite inflation, which is likely to curb global consumption and prompt central banks to hike interest rates further. This would put additional pressure on the global economy and thus reduce oil demand. Narrative B comes from Middle East Monitor. Saudi Arabia's announcement to voluntarily curb its crude production in addition to OPEC Plus output cuts is a prudent precautionary measure to improve market stability, given the faltering global economy, the banking crisis, and the ill-considered price cap on Russian oil. Moreover, money printing by Western countries in recent years has fueled inflation and lowered the U.S. dollar's value, forcing major oil-producing countries to take action to protect the U.S. dollar-based value of their most important export. Metaculous Prediction Community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 30% chance that oil exports will count for less than 70% of Saudi Arabian exports in Q1 of 2024. News coming from India as a top detective agency is to investigate a catastrophic train wreck. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, The Print, Reuters, and The Economic Times. On Monday, India's railway minister Ashwini Vaishna recommended that the Central Bureau of Investigation, the country's top detective agency, investigate the three-train collision in the eastern Indian state of Odisha on Friday. Previously, Vaishna had suggested a signal fault, with a change in electronic interlocking as the likely cause led to the deadly crash that killed at least 288 travelers and left over 1,000 injured in Odisha's Balasore district. Though the cause of the accident is still unclear, local media said a high-speed passenger train first hit a nearby stationary freight train and then derailed onto the adjacent track before it was struck by another train coming from the opposite direction. Rescue efforts reportedly concluded Saturday, with officials saying that all trapped passengers had been recovered. According to the railway ministry, work to rebuild the infrastructure has begun. Meanwhile, the railway ministry has announced compensation of 1 million rupees or $12,000 to the kin of the deceased, 200,000 rupees or $2,400 to the grievously wounded, and 50,000 rupees or $600 to passengers who sustained minor injuries. India's deadliest and the world's second biggest rail accident was in 1981, when an overcrowded passenger train plunged off a bridge into a river in the country's eastern state of Bihar killing an estimated 800 people. Those are some tragic facts, Eric. We have some narrative spins, starting with Narrative A from CNN. Friday's accident unfortunately highlights India's worrying railway safety record. In 2021, more than 16,000 people were killed in nearly 18,000 railway accidents across the country, mainly from collisions between the trains. Countless lives will be lost if Prime Minister Narendra Modi's administration continues to launch 
high-speed trains instead of addressing the issues of aging infrastructure, poor traffic management systems, and overworked loco pilots. Narrative B comes from Business India. Despite facing a plethora of problems, India's railway network is moving towards modernization, including the facelifting of over 200 railway stations and the construction of 100,000 kilometers of new railway tracks over the next 20 years. While the cause of Friday's crash hasn't been ascertained yet, Indian authorities are moving quickly in their investigation and search and rescue, which, for now, is rightly prioritizing victims and their families. Trump's lawyers meet with the DOJ for nearly two hours. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNBC, CBS News, CNN, NBC News, The Associated Press, and The Hill. Former President Trump's lawyers met with officials from the U.S. Department of Justice Monday morning amid growing speculation about a potential indictment as special counsel Jack Smith wraps up investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Lawyers John Rowley, James Trusty, and Lindsey Halligan met with DOJ officials for nearly two hours in Washington, D.C. Trump's team reportedly likely raised concerns about how the DOJ has approached attorney-client matters during the investigations. Neither Attorney General Merrick Garland nor Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco attended the meeting. Trump's campaign spokesman has not yet responded for comment, while a DOJ spokesperson declined to provide any information on the meeting. Two weeks ago, Trump's lawyers requested a meeting with Garland to raise their concerns about alleged misconduct and overreach by Smith. Trump has repeatedly complained about how his investigation is being handled compared to those of political rivals Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. Just moments after the meeting ended, Trump posted to Truth Social asking how the DOJ could charge him while never charging any other presidents. Some speculate the meeting could mark the end of the investigation that started last year. The grand jury investigating Trump's handling of classified documents, which culminated in a raid on his Mar-a-Lago property last August, is slated to convene this week. All right, those were the facts, and we have a couple of spins beginning with the anti-Trump narrative coming from Salon. Donald Trump is in big trouble, and he knows it, which is why he had yet another meltdown on Truth Social. Trump loves to play the victim and rile up his supporters to commit violence on his behalf. This immature and illegal behavior is why Trump is under investigation in the first place and why he will be indicted. Hopefully, Smith will end Trump's malfeasance for good. And there's a pro-Trump narrative from Red State. The establishment, including the Biden administration, institutions, media, and rhino Republicans, is relentless in its quest to stop Trump and his America First movement. Trump and his supporters know that these politically motivated charges will never end, which is why calling the swamp out is so important. Smith's probe, just like the Russiagate witch hunt, is purely theatrical out of fear that Trump will win the 2024 election. We have a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 28% chance that any U.S. court will disqualify Donald Trump from holding the presidency before January 20th, 2025. If you're going to run for president, Eric, as we've talked about off air on it many times, like it's getting to be about time to file that paperwork. Yeah, you're right. Time's running out. I think you should run and I'll be your running mate. Oh, I see. Well, that's <laughs> nice. Of, yeah. Yeah. Let's not let's not go against each other here. No. We've seen how that goes. No. Yeah. China's minister warns of unbearable disaster in a U.S.-PRC conflict. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Independent, Xinhua, CNN, and Al Jazeera. 
In his first major speech since taking on the role, China's Defense Minister General Li Shangfu stated at the annual Shangri-La Dialogue Security Summit in Singapore that a U.S.-China war would be an unbearable disaster for the world. Li criticized some countries for intensifying an arms race and meddling in the internal affairs of others, apparently in a veiled insinuation about the U.S., adding that the resurgent Cold War mentality is raising security risks. He further argued that Beijing and Washington should seek common ground and interests to grow bilateral ties despite having different systems, as both countries have historically benefited from cooperation and lost from confrontation. This comes a day after U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin stated at the summit that dialogue is a necessity rather than a reward, expressing his concerns over China's alleged unwillingness to engage more seriously on processes to manage crises. The relationships between the U.S. and China have been strained over a range of issues, including Taiwan's democratic status, territorial disputes in the South China Sea, and restrictions on semiconductor chip exports imposed by U.S. President Biden. Thanks anyway for those ominous facts, Eric. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. If the Biden administration really wants to thaw bilateral relations with Beijing, it should start respecting China's core interests and taking concrete actions to match its words instead of merely engaging in superficial interactions to restore high-level communications. While the U.S. has indeed changed its rhetoric, its true intentions of containing China haven't changed at all. The New York Times brings us an anti-China narrative. Though the U.S. has been trying to mend ties with China following months of strained relations, the predicted thaw has been obstructed as Beijing adopts a tougher stance with regard to tech export controls and demands the dropping of sanctions imposed on its officials and companies. If China remains intransigent, pushing to set its own terms to re-engage with the U.S., cooling tensions will be very difficult. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. Their community predicts that there is an 8% chance that there will be active warfare between the U.S. and China before the year 2027. I agree with this Chinese <laughs> official here. Yeah. I know exactly what this 8% means. Yeah. You don't want to mess around with that 8% at all. No. Benarock joins Twitter in a business operations role. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Business Chief North America, and The News International. On Monday, Joe Benarock, who oversaw the communication strategy for NBC Universal's Advertising and Partnership Division, will join Twitter in an unspecified business operations role. In an announcement posted on social media, Benarock wrote, I am looking forward to bringing my experience to Twitter and to working with the entire team to build Twitter 2.0 together. For more than two decades, Benarock has worked for several big-name companies, including Starcom, Discover, IPG, AOL, Facebook, and Google. During his 6.5 years at Facebook, he helped annual ad revenue reach nearly $100 billion. Benarock will be reunited with former NBC Universal advertising head Linda Yaccarino, who's the new CEO of Twitter. Owner Elon Musk will relinquish the CEO title, but remain as executive chairman and chief technology officer. This news emerges one week after the resignation, for unspecified reasons, of Twitter's second head of trust and safety, Ella Irwin, though it may have pertained to Musk's criticism of content moderation decisions related to the site. Scott, thank you for those facts. Town Hall is giving us our first spin. It's Narrative A. It remains to be seen whether the hiring of Benarock or Yaccarino will be positive for Twitter. 
Since Musk acquired Yaccarino, conservatives have been skeptical that Twitter will remain on the path toward absolute free speech, and with good reason. Yaccarino comes from liberal NBC, where she publicly voiced liberal viewpoints and seemed like the type of person to bring back the shadow banning of conservatives. Musk's Twitter still has a lot to prove. And Narrative B comes from the Wall Street Journal. These recent hires will have no impact on Twitter's free speech absolutism, as Musk will still have significant sway in who Twitter hires to run the content moderation arm of the company and how content is managed. Yankarino might also have a say, but she's been brought in more to reassure advertisers and convince them that Twitter, with its nearly unlimited free speech, is a company worth advertising with. In medical news, the AstraZeneca lung cancer pill cuts the risk of death in half. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Times, Guardian, and iNews. According to clinical trial data presented Sunday at an American Society of Clinical Oncology conference in Chicago, AstraZeneca's lung cancer drug cut the risk of dying from a specific form of the disease by 51%. The late-stage study of the once-daily drug called Ozomirnitib, marketed under the name Tegriso, showed that an estimated 88% of non-small cell lung cancer patients treated with the pill after surgery were alive at five years, compared to 78% on placebo. The trial involved 682 patients who were either given the placebo or Tegriso to see if cancer progress could be slowed. The decade-long global study observed consistent survival benefits across all subgroups, including patients with stage 1, stage 2, and stage 3 lung cancer, irrespective of whether they received chemotherapy. All participants had a mutation of their epidermal growth factor receptor gene, or EGFR, which is more common in women than men and accounts for about 25% of all lung cancer cases. Researchers say ozomertinib could change clinical practice and become the standard of care, as not every person diagnosed with lung cancer is tested for the genetic mutation. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Narrative A comes from CancerNetwork.com. These promising results could be the first step toward AstraZeneca's revolutionizing treatment for adults with this specific type of lung cancer. If the drug could help prevent lung cancer's progression to the brain, liver, and bones, it would undoubtedly be a game-changer for millions of patients worldwide. Narrative B comes from Healthline. The medical community must wait for more data before getting too excited about this development. There are still significant side effects associated with ozomertinib, and even if it receives FDA approval, doctors will find it difficult to prescribe it if lung cancer patients are not screened for the specific genetic mutation. There's still a long way to go until it's time to celebrate victory against this deadly disease. Another nerd narrative, the Metaculous Prediction community forecasts that there's a 50% chance there will be a breakthrough in the treatment of hard-to-treat cancers by August of 2031. That would be nice. We could use some good news, I feel like. We haven't had like a big breakthrough in something good. Anything having to do with cancer, this sounds like some pretty significant progress. News from Utah as some primary schools ban the Bible. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, NPR Online News, BBC News, CNN, and the Salt Lake Tribune. The Davis School District has reportedly banned the Bible from elementary and middle schools for allegedly containing vulgarity or violence. The book, however, will remain in place in high school libraries. The move takes effect immediately and follows a parent's complaint that cited Utah's 2022 law banning books with so-called pornographic or indecent material. 
The complaint termed the King James Bible one of the most sex-ridden books around and included passages from the religious text it claimed violated the law. The Utah state lawmaker behind the 2022 law, who had previously dismissed the Bible removal request as a mockery of the statute, ruled that it doesn't violate the law in question, but called the holy book a challenging read not suitable for younger students. Meanwhile, on Friday, the district received a request to remove the Book of Mormon, the religious text used in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for so-called sensitive material, including battles, beheadings, and kidnappings. The removal comes amid a wider push across the U.S. as several states have reportedly introduced legislation to prohibit certain books in children's education, with Florida having removed some LGBTQ plus and race books, and Iowa having enacted a law to ensure libraries carry age-appropriate books. Scott, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from Sky News. The effort to ban the Bible was undoubtedly a mockery of conservative states that are standing against left-wing indoctrination in American schools. Unfortunately, even after acknowledging that the Bible's content didn't violate the law, the district pulled it from the school shelves, arguing it wasn't suitable for younger children. The decision is illogical, baseless, and hypocritical. The left narrative comes from New York Daily News. Conservatives are reaping what they sow, as seen by this latest ban, as the GOP culture war continues to cripple education systems nationwide and children's curiosity and critical thought, parents have had enough. Hopefully, the removal of the Bible, which is merely following GOP guidelines, will force the opposition to rethink its war on freedom of thought. CNN gives us a cynical narrative for this story. It's dangerous that politicians and advocacy groups who place politics above young people's education needs are deciding what children should read. If the rising trend to ban, limit, or restrict books goes unchecked, politicians will control how students, caught in the crossfire of these bipartisan games, are taught and how they think. America's war on books must end. And our final narrative is a nerd one from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 50% chance that the U.S.'s score in the Freedom in the World report for 2050 will be at least 80.41. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, June 6th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.